morning, everybody. I trust everyone had a good holiday. Got home safely if you went anywhere. And didn't slip and fall down in the parking lot this morning and plan to sue us. Um, <clears throat> Advent, the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day, is a an ancient has an ancient history. It's not prescribed in the Bible, um, but the church has, for centuries, treated the four Sundays prior to Christmas Sunday as preparation, um, you know, preparing for the actual day of that we commemorate the birth of Jesus. And there are very familiar themes that are used in these four Sundays. And this year, there, there are a lot of different themes we can use and have used. This year, we're looking at probably the most common themes for each Sunday, and that is love, hope, joy, peace. There's intended to be a logical sequence to this, that the love of God toward us is the foundation for everything else, and the love of God precedes everything else. His love toward us then leads to hope, and there are a couple kinds of hope that we can uh, look at. There's the hope that the scripture, especially the New Testament, speaks concerning the believer, that the believer has a steadfast hope, which is more than the common usage of the word hope. I hope so. It is a certainty based on faith, uh, a, a sure and steadfast hope that's entered into heaven. There is, though, I think another kind of hope that God's love prompts and precedes. And that's the hope of a lost soul. Those of us that are, when, when we're caught in sin, when we're in the darkness, there is hope. Somebody's for me. God's for me. And that inspires hope in our hearts. Then, of course, as we find God and move into God, there's joy. There's rejoicing in what God has done for us as it becomes clearer to us. And with his indwelling in our hearts, we rejoice in the blessings of God. And, of course, then a subsequent benefit is peace. And there are two kinds of peace. There's peace with God, the end of hostilities that comes in the new birth. There's a deeper peace. It's the peace of God. When God dwells in my heart without a rival, in a heart that is entirely submitted to him, that's a deeper 
beyond just peace with God in hostilities coming to an end. It's, it's the reign of Christ through the Holy Spirit in a surrendered heart. So those are the themes that we'll use looking at Advent this year and love being the first today. First John, there's obviously several passages in the Bible about love and God's love for us, so we're, we can't read all those. First John 4 is what I just want to select <clears throat> here, beginning with, we'll start with verse 10. First John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God first, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is to take away. He removes our sins from us. Matthew, the prophecy there, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So he came to be a propitiation. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide or remain in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment or produces torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Finally, we love him because he first loved us. Now, I don't want to get too much into tall weeds here. Not that I'm some great intellectual and I've got to try to get things down to, you know, the simple level of <clears throat> all of you people. Um, but we have to go back to the beginning. What's the source, the origin of love? We need to define what it means. And we need to define its, its purpose, its aim. Why does God love us? But first, love has its origin in the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity, I know it's a mystery. It has been down through the, the first five, six, seven centuries of the church fraught with error, misunderstandings, heresies. It's, it's a mystery that we know is real. It's revealed everywhere in Scripture, but it is partially graspable 
by us, but only partially. There is much mystery to it. Early heresies began to get off into basically three separate gods, which is not true. Others said there's only one person in the Godhead who shows us different sides of him, and that is called modalism. I know all of you have heard of that, and you know it's a heresy, so I don't need to spend too much more time on that. There's been all kinds of false doctrines that have blossomed from a misunderstanding of the Trinity. The best we can come up with, and it's best, of course, that we stick to what the Scripture has revealed. And we believe it. People, by the way, a lot of people will say, I don't believe anything I can't understand. Well, then most of us don't believe very much. I believe in electricity, but I don't understand it. I guess I believe, by the way, in technology, but I don't understand it. And we'll get off on that. The origin of love, then, is within the three persons of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son reciprocates and loves the Father. And the bond, the ground of the communion between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. The, all three persons of the Trinity, then, dwell in an atmosphere of love for each other person. I need someone, I need an object outside of myself to love. Now sin of course has turned things all around which we don't want to get into right now. But I, I need an object outside of myself to whom I give love. You have then love originating in the Trinity. Between the three persons of the Trinity. God is a person. <clears throat> Let me just give you a quick definition of God. Simple one. One of the best, I think. God is an eternal, and by the way, splitting hairs, not just everlasting. Everlasting assumes a beginning that never ends. He had no beginning either, so he's eternal. An eternal, personal being of infinite power, knowledge, and goodness. That's a short, concise, good definition of God. Now, God exists eternally in three persons, but as a he has a personality. Thus, he created us as persons. We then can learn a bit about God from us if we have an understanding that as persons, we have choice, we have power to choose, we have reason, we have feelings. So does God. He made us to be like him. We reflect his image. So, to a degree, obviously, the entrance of sin and the fall has horribly distorted the picture. But there's enough left 
that we can sense from ourselves and understand God's like us because he made us in his image. Yes, sin has marred it, but he has the image that he gave to us. He is a person of will, of reason, and of, if you want to call it, emotions. God has feelings. He made us like that. So we have a bit of a link there that we can understand. And it, it drives us to this. It points us to the fact that God's nature, God has a nature and then God has attributes. Attributes are those faculties and powers that he has. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's immutable, he never changes. All of those are attributes, but they're not his nature. Who he is in his character is, the best we can, I think the scripture reveals, is holy love. Now, not, not loving holiness. You might think, well, that's hair splitting. No. Holy love is God's nature. And there's logical precedence there. First, holiness involves self-affirmation, meaning I, I know I'm a self, and I am distinct from other selves. Okay? We share that with God. Each of us are individuals. We interact with other individuals, but we're in individuals. Self-recognition marking off who I am. And there are limits then to who I let in. I am, I am a being who then, recognizing the boundaries, I interact with other people who are also individuals. So I have to be marked off as an individual, and God marks himself off as holy, separate, higher than, other than. Only when I have, when I self-affirm, can I then self-communicate. That's why holy love has to be that order. Love communicates itself. Love reaches out. I can't reach out as a being to another being until I first recognize I am a being. Now, if you don't get all that, you can still make it to heaven. So, but there's logic to the fact that God is holy love. Now, how does that work together? You don't have a God who is schizophrenic where you have holiness pitted against love. Love wants to save, holiness wants to judge. And judgment and wrath and the very definition of sin comes from holiness, the requirement that there be a blood offering, a sacrifice, a death for sin comes from God's holiness, his love 
reaches out to spare us, to save us. But you don't have a God who is pitted against himself. Holiness, God's holiness, he always acts in accordance with love. He'll never do anything that is not holy love. And his love always seeks to win the object of love to holiness. The reason God loves us is he reaches out to draw us back to himself and to remake us in his image morally. He seeks us so he can make us righteous. There is a benefit to me that he loves us. Now, <clears throat> so God's nature as holy love is the basis then for understanding the second thing, the revelation of love. How has God revealed himself to us? It is progressive. God's whole, the Bible's progressive revelation. That is a basic concept of Christian theology. Progressive revelation. God has to deal with a race that once knew him and we fellowshiped together and there was nothing between us. We rebelled against him. That plunged us into total separation from God, plunged us into depravity. It also plunged us into um, intellectual and spiritual darkness. So now God has to start in his effort to reach us, to draw us back to him, to strike out after us, to call us back. He has to resort to preschool. He, that's what he's had to do. He's had to deal with preschool concepts. And he gradually builds until he begins to re reveal himself in more particular ways. And that took God. He spent 1,500 years writing about it out of a total of roughly 3,500 to 4,000 of recorded history to get us to where we understand and grasp something. Progressive revelation, by the way, is another thing that's misunderstood because a lot of people then will look at stuff, they'll look at things in the Old Testament. Well, how come you let them have multiple wives? It's progressive revelation. And we, can you figure that? Yeah, we can figure it out. How? Look at your kids. If you require of a five-year-old what only a 17-year-old could understand, you're a lousy parent. We use progressive revelation. The problem with us is we're blind. We can't really understand what a child or someone else can fully grasp. We don't know if they fully grasp it or not. We think they do, and therefore, we will judge them, punish them, reward them based on possibly false information. Now, God doesn't deal with false information. He knows every heart. He knows the human heart. He knows everything. So he knows at what pace 
he can begin to spoon feed us truth and get us to the place where we have hopefully an aha moment and we get it. Now, here's one of the ways God revealed himself gradually. Through his names. He revealed himself by names. Now the first name is Elohim. Elohim shows up in the first verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim. That is a generic word, meaning even the heathen, all through the Old Testament, all of the heathen, pagan worshippers, idols, use the same word. It's just a, gener a generic for some kind of a being, and its root meaning is possessor of power, life. It's basically a, a, the Judeo-Christian God then is revealed as creator. He is the source, the beginning of life. He's always been the source of life. He got it from nowhere outside of himself. He is life, and he gives life. And it's not just living being. It is all of life. Logic, beauty, order, all that we know of life, all of it comes from God. He's the creator of it all. We can grasp that. The idea of power. Second, a second name by which he revealed himself is Jehovah or Yahweh. That name is, was defined by God himself to Moses at the burning bush. He said, you go into Egypt and you march into Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go to worship the Hebrew God. And Moses said, what, what name do I use for who you are? Both to the Israelites and to the Egyptians, that they'll give me some kind of credibility, pay attention to me. He said, Jehovah, and then he defined it. I am that I am. Or I am whom I am. I am. Interestingly, Jesus got himself in royal trouble with the Jewish leaders when he said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. And they said, you're not 50 years old yet. How can you say you know Abraham? He said, before Abraham was, I am. At that point, it said they picked up stones to stone him to death because they understood him correctly to be saying, I'm God. The word Jehovah, then, is a personal pronoun. It's a personal name of God, not generic, a being, a supreme being. Now this God has a personal name. And this word Jehovah is not only I am, but it's I am one who brings forth. 
I am one who brings understanding, brings light. The third name, there are, by the way, there are a lot of names that start with Jehovah. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah this, Jehovah that. Those are names the Jews attributed to God for some particular thing he did. Um, you know, Jehovah sees, Jehovah blesses, Jehovah redeems, Jehovah wins in battle. But they still stick with the personal pronoun of a being now who dwells with us and reveals deity to us. The third specific name, El Shaddai. Now Abraham is the first one that heard that name. When God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, he said, I am the Lord. Walk before me and you be perfect. Well, that's an impossible command. Except it isn't. Because of the name El Shaddai. It's, it, it's the very root word comes from breast. And it means eternal supplier, nourisher, feeder, one who lives blessing into the lives of those who follow him. He is the eternal sustainer. That word El Shaddai and that description of that picture of God begin towards the New Testament to mean comforter. The Holy Spirit who sustains us, dwells with us, blesses us, guides us. You see then in these, those three names a progressive revelation. God the Father, Elohim, power, life. God the Son, Jesus, a name, a person of the Trinity that reveals God to us by dwelling with us and opening himself up to us. And then El Shaddai, the Holy Spirit, who permanently comes to dwell in light, dwell in us, enlighten us, feed us, sustain us, keep us. There again, in those three names, is the progressive revelation of the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity. One other quick reference, John is the peculiar uh, writer of all this, both in his gospel and in 1 John. God, the Father, brings life. There are three words you see in John's writings. Life, light, love. The Father, giver of all life. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Second, <clears throat> Jesus, who brings light. He reveals the Father. 
Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I came to reveal the Father. So Jesus is the light. John said, First John, or John chapter 1, the light has come into the world. And the world, older versions, the King James says, did not comprehend it. It's not a good translation. The light has come into the world and the darkness has not been able to extinguish it. Because it's God. God isn't a light. He is light. And then, finally, the Holy Spirit brings love. He is the bond. Paul calls him the bond of perfectness among believers. That we are to keep the peace, love one another, and talks about the Spirit being the glue that keeps us together. He is the giver and the, the pourer out of love in our hearts, which is God's likeness. God, all through Scripture and human experience, has poured out before us gradually so we can get a hold of it. Life, light, love. Now, this progressive revelation of love, then, <clears throat> leads to a couple of things. The definition of love is the third thing I want to look at. The definition of love is this. God's desire to impart <clears throat> himself and all good to his creatures and to possess them for spiritual fellowship. We are the beneficiaries of that spiritual fellowship. God, some people have said, that I've heard a lot of people teach. Well, God was, you know, he was lonely and he wanted somebody to fellowship with, so he made Adam and Eve. God needs nothing outside of himself. One of his attributes is self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anybody. I don't know how long everlasting is. I don't know how long from everlasting is, but it's a really long time. And he got along famously by himself, okay? He doesn't need us. He created us to receive from him. We are objects of his love, which is why he created us. So God desires to give himself to dwell in us. So I made our hearts as his dwelling place. I don't know how to describe the horrible, disjointed, ripping apart of the fabric of everything God created when Adam and Eve used the power to choose that he gave them to reject him. So really, we as the objects of his love have two choices. Let him, let him so transform us that we love him back or reject it and be destroyed. 
he basically then, he seeks every object of his love to benefit us, to fellowship with us, and to remake us like him. If we submit to that, we are his children and we'll spend eternity with him. His great love is fulfilled in taking us to dwell with him forever. His wrath, his judgment is the corollary. It's the other side of the coin to love. His great affection for us becomes wrath at anything that would destroy us, especially self-destruction, which is rebellion against God. He made us and he wants us not only to allow him to love us, but he expects that we reciprocate. We love him back. Now, we can understand that as humans. We love others outside of ourselves and in the proper, only through grace, the proper love we have for others is a possessive kind of love, but it's not selfish. We, not being God, we can't give the kind of benefit he can, but we give benefit and we receive benefit. And that is one of the things that impels us to love others, especially spouses, so forth, family, where we, we want to possess them. Now, inject sin into that, and you got a mess. You got a selfish kind of love that loves only for what I can get, not what I can give. And a love that not, doesn't benefit from the fellowship of that other being and from that being's benefits to me, corrections to me, balance to me. But we now love in a selfish way what I can get and knowing what I want to get, my efforts are trying to turn that spouse's personality and temperament to be like me, to stop I don't look at them as a benefit to me because it's offensive to me that they're different than me. That's what sin has just warped and fouled up. But right kind, purified heart love, both from God and humans, is a love that wishes also for that object of love to reciprocate. I want them to love me back. That's natural because that's God's love God's love expects to be returned that he loves me therefore I love him there's the fellowship that we have and his love precedes it started first he loved us when we were yet sinners which brings me to a second characteristic of, of God's love for us they're elements of his love. Probably the first one is he initiates. He loved us first. But second, this is something about God's love that is different than fallen human love. God's love 
is not based on any perceived worth in the object that I'm loving or in any kind of lovableness in that person. God loves us when we're unlovely, unlovable, rebels, depraved, evil, hateful. He loves us. And so we recognize that as we, by the grace of God and God's love in us, extended to people that's why Jesus could say with my love in your heart you love your enemy love those who hate you pray for those who despitefully use you bless those who curse you because that's what God does God's love towards us gives us our worth. He doesn't love us because of some worth in us. We've lost that in rebellion. His love to me is what makes me worth something. If that makes sense. <clears throat> God loves us so that he can fellowship with us, desires to possess us, and there's two reasons why he wants to possess me, to own me. One is to benefit me in every way possible, to pour out his blessing on me, his love and affection and care like a shepherd for his sheep. That's why he, he wants to gather us to himself. And then, as I mentioned the second aim is for that object of his love to come to love him back. So that's why he strikes out after us. That's why it says that he sent his son as a savior. He sent, we don't, we can't recognize the depth of sacrifice there. And here's a real mystery that I can't explain to you, but I'll still bring it up. One of the best theologians that I've read and known made a statement that he himself couldn't explain. But he said, somehow, in some way, the Trinity itself was permanently altered in God the Father sending his Son to be a propitiation for sin, an offering for sin. Holiness demanded a sacrifice for sin. God's love provided it. We can't, we can't grasp that. But God, that's the links to which God went to redeem us, to call us back. I, I, I can't grasp that. That it costs God, and it's like Charles Wesley's great hymn, Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I can't. How can it be? So, from 
the foundation of the world, the love of God has been toward us, not only in our creation, but in the awful aftermath of sin. His love became even brighter that he was willing in his display of his love to show self-sacrifice. I hope we can see and I hope I can always be mindful. When God calls us to minuscule sacrifices in serving him, in giving back to him, in loving him, this is another thought, but then, then I'll quit. Some of this makes more sense to me, too, why Jesus said to the disciples, he wasn't being cruel, he wasn't being unkind at all, but he said, you are unprofitable servants. You're a losing investment. <laughs> Meaning, not in vain, but I put more money into you than I got back. that kind of investment return wouldn't do very well on Wall Street. So then, when Jesus says, follow me. You follow me. You go where I go and where I went. And you sacrifice for me. Whether it be, we always think of, well, he called me to be a missionary in the jungles of the Amazon. Maybe he does. You go. Because he came all the way from heaven to this cesspool to redeem me. So that's why I owe him my love back. And when we give him our whole self, drop in the bucket to what he's given for us. We're going to close with a song this morning that I it's familiar to, to you. <clears throat> Just called There is a Redeemer. <clears throat> Don't know how old it is, but it's it's a good it's a good song to close with. And so if you'd stand while we sing, <clears throat> paying attention to the words, <clears throat> then Dan will dismiss us with the benediction. <clears throat>